Hello all, my name is Marissa, and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, where, if you are here, then you, for some reason that is beyond me, decided it would be, at the very least, amusing to listen to a comic book newbie and Marvel Comics fangirl just talk about Iron Man for an as-of-yet-to-be-determined amount of time. In this official inaugural episode, we are going to cover the origin of Iron Man. We will go through the entire story page by page as originally written, with a bit of mild commentary thrown in, and at the end, we will discuss how the story has been retconned and reframed over the years, including introducing my favorite retelling of the story, and comparing it to how it was presented in the first Iron Man movie. I trust that by choosing to listen to this first episode, you actually listen to either the intro or the hopefully not too lengthy pilot episode in order to understand a little of where I'm coming from and why I'm choosing to focus on Iron Man for this rundown of as much of the character's history until I either A. get bored or B. hit a creative block or C. just become dismayed and quit. But I'm feeling great about this at the starting line, so let's get going. If you did listen to the pilot, I hope you enjoyed my hopefully short rundown of my personal history and feelings regarding Iron Man as he presents within the confines of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That being as it may, I am going to reiterate that the film adaptation is not the focus of this series. The two versions of the character are quite different, to where redirecting too much focus on his MCU counterpart would be reductive to the mission statement of this project. And besides, let's be real now. If you want to hear about MCU, then you're going to go find that podcast instead, as there are no shortage of MCU podcasts. Additionally, there are plenty of amazing video essays about MCU Iron Man, and yet hardly any about the comic history of the character. That's the main reason I'm making this to begin with, after all. Obviously, for the sake of a relatively comprehensive, if not extremely subjective account, I will point out similarities and comparisons where they exist. After all, this wouldn't be much of an Iron Man podcast if I didn't. I recognize that it is because of the MCU that I fell in love with the character to begin with, and I would be remiss not to recognize that fact. All the same, I would again like to emphasize that this series' focus is first and foremost on the comic history of the character, injected with a bit of my own analysis with film comparisons only where appropriate, so hopefully I'll find that interesting at the very least. If you didn't listen to the pilot, and I won't blame you if you didn't, since you decided to just get right into it and listen to this first episode, then here's your TLDR. I got tired of everyone only focusing on MCU Iron Man, and in comics discussions, actively and deliberately avoiding him completely, for various mostly seemingly asinine reasons. So I just said, you know what? I'll just do it myself. We good? Good. Well then, let's get started. Character History We begin at the beginning. As every Marvel Comics aficionado knows, back in the day, due to title number restrictions from their publisher at the time, following the success of the Fantastic Four starting in 1961, the newly rechristened Marvel Comics used the horror and suspense anthology books they were already publishing to introduce their new staple of superheroes and build the foundations of what we now know as the Marvel Universe. 
the character of Iron Man first debuted in Tales of Suspense number 39, cover dated March 1963, and released December 10, 1962. Y'all comics folks, let me know which date is more helpful, the cover date or the release date. I'm going to keep using both for now until we figure this out. <laughs> the character is mostly credited as being collaboratively created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and Jack Kirby. Iron Man as a concept was, according to Stan Lee himself, an experiment to see how much his readers would buy in terms of character relatability, whether or not he could take an otherwise unrelatable and, by all accounts, unlikable character, and to make people sympathize with him on a human level. In Stan's own words, he thought it would be an interesting challenge to, and I quote, take the kind of character that nobody would like and shove him down their throats and make them like him. End quote. It is up to your own interpretation as to whether or not this experiment was successful. However, seeing as the character has been consistently actively published for going on 60 years now, regardless of how one might feel about him, I will certainly count that as a measure of success. Though that's not to say it was always easy, as you will see as we go forward. The physical appearance of Anthony Edward Tony Stark, Iron Man's alter ego, was, by all accounts, explicitly designed to be attractive, with artist Don Heck injecting hints of Errol Flynn, specifically note the mustache, and again, her Stan Lee incorporating character traits and background as a military contractor in order to intentionally invoke Howard Hughes. These efforts seem to have not gone unnoticed, as even Stan Lee once remarked that Iron Man specifically had a sizable female reader base when compared to his fellow heroes. I would imagine the combination of a handsome man with a tragic backstory helped readers to identify with the otherwise unidentifiable wealthy genius wearing a metal suit that effectively makes him into a one-man artillery. It certainly worked on me, otherwise I wouldn't be making this podcast. Iron Man is, to my mind, a modern-day knight in shining armor. That's the reason this podcast has its name. He is noble, clever, brave, and powerful and his armor can do just about anything you can dream of. But, for all this, he's like his fellow heroes in the Marvel Universe, in that it is his flaws that make him an interesting character. He begins existence as a billionaire arms dealer who is constantly wrestling with his own ego and hubris, and more often than not, his own worst enemy would turn out to be himself, rather than the actual villain he happened to be fighting that month. We'll be attempting to identify and break down various aspects of his character as they appear and develop, and as I tried to explain why, despite all efforts to make us believe otherwise, I actually do believe that Comic Iron Man is a compelling and interesting character with clear flaws and faults to overcome, and that he has just as much merit for existing as a character study as his more well-known movie counterpart, as well as being incredibly heroic, again, despite all effort to make him appear otherwise. For transparency's sake, I will be reading and referencing from Iron Man Epic Collection Volume 1, titled The Golden Avenger, part of Marvel's Epic Collection line of trades, which reprint large chunks of a character's published history in easy-to-read volumes. The first volume of the Iron Man series covers the first half of his Tales of Suspense adventures, starting with his origin in number 39 and going through to number 72, and, as the name implies, chronicles the early days of Iron Man introducing us to some important recurring characters, including some of his most infamous baddies and most faithful friends in the process. 
Those issues numbers sound like a lot. However, the TOS stories, as I will be abbreviating the title from time to time, were much shorter than a full-length copy at the time, since they were still part of an anthology book. Despite this, I will probably spend more time discussing more important stories in the character's history, such as his origin, and will try to group non-essential stories and full story arcs into single episodes where applicable. Even though I will personally be reading from these collections unless otherwise stated, I think you should easily be able to follow along on Marvel Unlimited if you are a subscriber there, should you feel so inclined to read with me, as I will be referencing key scenes as we go in order to keep us all on the same page. In addition, speaking of pages, I will try to use the printed page number as originally lettered on the page corners wherever possible in order to allow for easier reference. With that red tape out of the way, and without further ado, let's dive into Iron Man's origin story as we take a look at where it all began. We've got to know where he came from in order to better understand where he's going. Story Summary and Discussion It all begins in Tales of Suspense number 39, Iron Man is Born. Who, or what, is the newest, most breathtaking, most sensational superhero of all? This is the blurb on the now iconic cover of this debut issue. Anyone who is familiar with early Marvel comics knows that Stan Lee had a flair for the dramatic and hyperbolic, but hey, he was very effective in building up hype for these characters, and our guy here is no different. This cover has been recreated and homaged several times throughout the character's history including during a landmark run in the late 70s. And, God willing, I'll be able to do this podcast long enough for us to reach that point, because boy, there is some good stuff there. The book opens to a splash page of Iron Man breaking through a rock face rather dramatically. Don Heck was the main artist on Iron Man for the first part of the character's history, and without his unique visuals, which only improve with each story, I don't think the impact would be quite the same. According to the Marvel Fandom Wiki, which I will be referencing from time to time in order to keep some details straight, he is also credited as the inker, which means he is both the penciler and inker on this title, and is inking his own work. As someone who grew up reading manga, where the artist and writer are more often than not credited as the same person, with maybe a small team helping with backgrounds, screen tones, and such, it sounds like a perfectly normal thing. But apparently, in Western comics, it is quite rare for the penciler to ink their own work, since the inker isn't usually credited in these issues. We'll just have to take this at face value. This is long before the colorist was also credited, so we've no idea on that front either, unfortunately. On the subject of art and credits, since I couldn't fit this anywhere else, note that the epic collections do not use the original coloring, but rather the enhanced recolored versions, particularly if you are reading the digital copy like I am. Knowing this, you think they bothered to fix some of the more problematic issues with the original coloring, but we'll get to that. This first story is credited as being plotted by Stan Lee and scripted by his brother Larry Lieber, which seems to me that maybe Lieber did most of the heavy lifting? I'm not 100% on those details, but I do know a small bit of trivia that we get the character's given name as presented in this issue from Larry so it stands to reason that he probably had a lot to do with the story coming together the way it does. 
Meeting our hero. Our story begins proper, quote, in a secluded area somewhere in the U.S. defense perimeter, in a presumably secret military lab, where we meet Anthony Stark, genius inventor who cuts his teeth crafting transistors and designing and building weapons for the U.S. military. Right away, we understand what Stan might have meant by an unlikable character. The hero of our story is an actual weapons manufacturer during the Cold War in an era where the conflict in Vietnam was heating up. This has since been retconned to a different fictional Southeast Asian conflict due to the sliding timescale of the Marvel Universe canon, which we will discuss at the final section of this episode that I've preemptively called Retcons, References, and Reflections. In the demonstration presented to us, Stark wows the government suits with his transistors, and it's presented in a way that makes us believe that this guy's a pretty big deal. A talented hotshot inventor might ruffle a few feathers, I would imagine, but it doesn't stop there. The next page piles it on even more as he is presented in various glamorous social situations, always in the company of a pretty lady, and is described as rich, handsome, and a glamorous playboy. There's Thorne in aside number two for our readers. He's intelligent, he works with the military, and he's good-looking. A talented hotshot inventor might ruffle a few feathers, I would imagine, but it doesn't stop there. The next page piles it on even more as he is presented in various glamorous social situations, always in the company of a pretty lady, and is described as rich, handsome, and a glamorous playboy. There's Thorin in the side number two for our readers. He's intelligent, he works with the military, and he's good-looking. The handsome nerd who can actually get girls trope maybe wasn't quite a thing, as far as I can tell, at least not the way it is today. But even if it was, I would imagine our boy here is probably one of the main codifiers. Both a sophisticate and a scientist, as the text says in the second panel on page 3. I would imagine many male readers at the time would have been incredibly jealous of such a guy if he existed in real life, and perhaps maybe even projected that onto the character a little bit. But since I'm not a guy, I wouldn't know. I can only guess. Another pair of ladies in the foreground, one blonde and one brunette, even solidifies this handsome playboy status by fawning over him and calling him Dreamy, with a blonde even giving us the first mention of his short-form nickname that we would all become familiar with. Tony Stark. I suppose Anthony Edward was a bit of a mouthful, huh? For obvious reasons, we'll just stick with the Miller and we'll call him Tony from now on. The Inciting Incident As our boy Tony is busy working hard and hardly working, we meet our first baddie, a real problematic and unfortunately racially insensitive character of a fella named Wong Chu, a guerrilla warlord who is as power-hungry as he is powerful and seemingly has a good chunk of an entire population under his grip. It's made perfectly clear that he is not a good dude at all, and while he appears to command respect from his people, it's more fear than actual reverence. While Chu is busy scheming, we have a presumed time skip, where our boy Tony has made it out to his baddie's neck of the woods on a business trip, field testing some new transistors in his capacity as a civilian contractor for the military. Just as he is warned by the soldiers escorting him about the dangers of the jungle, the entourage is taken by surprise by an actual combat encounter, 
and our clumsy boy runs right over a trip line, setting off a concealed landmine that kills the escorts and leaves Tony himself unconscious and mortally wounded. This is where the make people feel sorry for him part comes in from Stan's original intentions for the character. I would have loved to have been in the room when Stan or Larry, or whoever's idea it was, decided, Hey! Let's blow him up! I mean, whew! Talk about a harsh punishment. We just met the guy. But of course, that isn't the end. We're still at the beginning, after all. You see, death was too easy of an out for a boy Anthony. On top of being badly injured, he is also found by Wang Chi's men, who unfortunately know exactly who he is and how they can use him. And he is taken captive, making him effectively a prisoner of war. Becoming Iron Man Upon regaining consciousness, Tony is informed that he has presumably dozens of pieces of tiny shrapnel lodged in his chest dangerously close to his heart, or one big piece depending on writer's interpretation, more on that in the final section, and that he'll probably be dead within a week. But don't worry, all he's got to do is make a weapon for Wong Chi's forces and they'll fetch a doctor to cure him and he'll be good to go. Obviously. Both Tony and the reader understands that this is a whole crock of lies. If Chu's men could have saved him, they would have already done so, in order to effectively guarantee that he'll be alive long enough to even complete said weapon. So, instead of a weapon for Chu, Tony decides, instead, to build an apparatus with a dual purpose, turning himself into a weapon, while keeping him alive in the process. As he works, he is introduced to his cellmate, Dr. Jensen who applies his own wisdom and knowledge in helping Tony to complete the weapon, the apparatus of their salvation, hopefully, as well as providing some much-needed company and support, as Tony slowly grows weaker and weaker from his injury, and thus more discouraged. This apparatus, by the way, as you have already guessed, is the Mark I Iron Man armor, a big clunking gunmetal gray beast of a machine, with rocket jump boots, powerful magnet gloves, and... Oh, gosh dang flamethrowers. Still an iconic design in its own right. Oh, by the way, yes, we will be doing plenty of gushing about the armor designs in this podcast. Because of course we are. This is a show about Iron Man. The armor is the selling point. As the armor is completed, Jensen assists Tony in equipping it and starts the process of powering it up as the shrapnel begins killing him more quickly. Tony is running out of time. During the armor's initialization sequence, after it is fully equipped, Chu's men have realized that something is amiss and have sent a pack of armed guards after the two, presumably to put them in their place. Jensen, realizing the armor needs more time to complete the power-up sequence, decides to pull a Leroy Jenkins and runs her right out of their cell right into the middle of a whole pack of guards as a distraction, sacrificing himself in the process, yet ultimately saving Tony and buying the time he needed. Tony swears to avenge the good doctor as his first act as the armored warrior we will now refer to as Iron Man. Off topic, a short discussion about representation. While the portrayal of Jensen is overall positive and serves as a strong role model and confidant for Tony, 
He still presents within this origin story as a deeply and problematic caricature of a wise master type older Asian gentleman. <sighs> and one of the good ones. I hope you can hear my ear quotes. Especially when compared to Wang Ju and his men. As he spouts platitudes of wisdom and guidance. And of course, gains his own life as of no consequence. Quote from the book. Especially when compared to our protagonist. Mostly for the sole reason that he is the protagonist and title character. And most closely aligns with the persuasion of the creators of this tale. And probably most of the readers. The white American male lead character is inherently more important than the older Asian gentleman, even though he is also noted to have great knowledge in his field and is a positive figure in his own right. The fact that all of the Asian characters in this book are colored in that bizarre sickly pale yellow color that was shorthand for any individual from the region doesn't help, and kind of mires this book down a bit as a relic of the kind of troubling representation that was unfortunately all too common prior to the story's publication, and even in other stories following this one. While it's okay to still enjoy the writing and the work as a whole, for what it is, simply pointing these issues out as a product of its time does not even remotely add to the conversation of improving representation, not just in comics, but in most American media in general. And it, all in all, it just comes across as dismissive. But. And I can't stress this enough, it's okay to still like the story. It's a good story, and a strong origin for an iconic character. I can't stress this enough, it is okay to enjoy the story while admitting that there are aspects of it that are problematic as all get out. Both things can still be true at the same time, and neither one cancels out the other. And the more people recognize this, the more we can all enjoy looking back on these stories and the lessons we can learn from them. As a total aside, it is at this point, for the sake of transparency, I feel obligated to admit the irony of my own situation as a black woman whose favorite superhero, for some darn reason, is a white industrialist billionaire who is an active participant in the American military-industrial complex. What a world we live in, right? But, hey, that's the beauty of fiction. It's an amazing tool that can be used to discover truths about our society through many different viewpoints and experiences, including those that do not match our own, even in the slightest. And I think that's wonderful. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. The Birth of a Hero We are now at the top of page 8. Iron Man Lives. And, in the exact opposite of what you'd expect from the birth of a hero, the first we see of him is him stumbling around and falling on his rear end as he adjusts the wearing the armor, which is presented as suitably clunky and heavy and cumbersome to move around in, as well as should. It takes him a while to find his bearings, and even Tony comments on the absurdity of the situation, describing it as like a baby learning to walk. However, he knows time is of the essence, as Chu's men are still hot on his trail. And he's a fast learner, so he picks it up quickly. As Chu's men bust down the door, we see Iron Man take his first heroic action. A tactical retreat. Yep. Our hero knows he doesn't have a fighting strategy yet, so his first action is to run and hide in a corner. Or, in this case, on the ceiling. 
using the first noted ability of the armor. Suction devices and the gloves and boots. I guess communist warlord baddies don't look up. The suction devices aren't ever really seen again after this issue either, so let's count this as plot convenient throwaway ability number one. After Chu and his men can't find our guy, I guess they decide to just give up looking for him. Page then sees them back in the courtyard, Chu flaunting his strength like the wannabe badass that he is. <laughs> they are then finally confronted by our hero, who struts up to them wearing a trench coat and fedora hat, disguised for some reason, and exclaims, What's wrong? Have you never seen an Iron Man before? Bold declaration, Tony. Chu thinks him to be a machine, or else is just being hyperbolic. And Tony, seemingly obliging him, decides to joy with Chu, picking him up and twisting him over his head, tossing him aside like Mario tossing Bowser off a cliff by his tail, as he makes another weighty proclamation. You are not facing a wounded dying man now, or an aged gentle professor. This is Iron Man who opposes you and all you stand for. Hero Naming so the elephant in the room here. It's been established several times now that Tony is decidedly okay with calling himself Iron Man. It's quite different from what I'm used to, but I guess a, it is a more modern convention of heroes having to earn their name or have it given to them by some merit. The more I think about it, it does make a lot of sense that one would want to name themselves to get ahead of the eventual press before someone gives you a ridiculous name that you'd just be stuck with. Even the Fantastic Four gave themselves their own names, upon collectively deciding to use our newly obtained powers for good. And as an aside, I personally feel it is an absolute joke that people call Tony a narcissist when we have Reed Richards, this man who actually freaking called himself Mr. Fantastic. But I digress. Even though we aren't in the retcon section yet, I have decided that here's where I'll make my first reflection in comparison to the MCU. On the subject of hero naming, I personally like how in the MCU, even though Tony is shown as arrogant, flippant, and self-serving, he doesn't actually deign to name himself as a hero. It's seemingly the last thing on his mind, the first being fighting for his own survival. As I just alluded to, it's actually the press that does this heavy lifting for him, giving him the name Iron Man and throwing around terms like superhero when it comes to his takedown of the film's big bad, Obadiah Stane's Ironmonger. And Tony, being the oh-so-humble guy he is, decides in a blink at the press conference that closes the film that he really likes the idea of being just such an individual worthy of being called Hero, and being seen publicly being one. He puts down his cue cards and looks out his audience with a mischievous grin in a way that visually says to the viewers, You know what? Screw it as he decides to just roll with it in arguably one of the best closing sequences in a superhero movie. Unable to resist the accolades and credit for saving the day, he dazzles the room full of reporters by claiming the name and outing himself as said individual all at one breath with that one now iconic line, I am Iron Man. It's an absolutely brilliant and perfect conclusion to this film. Taking a name that someone else gave him and claiming it as his own comes across as a powerful gesture that shows him as bold and confident despite his trauma from the events that led to this point, and serves as a way to tell the whole world he's not here to mess around anymore. Though, since he's MCU Tony, he's still going to do a little bit of messing around here and there. He can't help it. 
And of course, none of this works without the masterfully charismatic performance of Robert Downey Jr. in the role of Anthony Iron Man Stark himself. Here in this origin comic, however, Tony simply puts on this clunky gray metal suit and just decides, well, I guess I'm Iron Man now. Let's do this. Not nearly as graceful, but that's what's written, so that's what we got. Victory and Defeat Returning to the story, we continue on page 11, as marked, and Wang Chu is furious. He does not appreciate being manhandled and losing face in front of an audience of his devoted followers, and orders his guards to destroy Iron Man. Here, we see the second of Iron Man's abilities, dubbed Reverse Magnetism. Whatever that's supposed to mean. I suppose it's akin to reversing the polarity of a magnet in order to push with bullets being fired at him away, the ones that don't just bounce off his armor at any rate. This ability would later take the form of a beam rather than a magnet wave. So, I think I'm feeling confident enough to call this ability the precursor to what would later become his famous repulsor rays, which we'll see in upcoming issues, which functioned in this exact same manner a reverse polarity array to push objects and bad guys away from him with varying amounts of force, before they ultimately just became straight-up laser beams, that is. Well, however it's supposed to work, the reverse magnetism ability effectively rattles Chu's men and causes them to flee, leaving Chu all alone by his sorry self. With no backup, and now showing his true colors as the coward he is, Chu heads indoors for cover scrambling up a set of stairs and pushing a filing cabinet filled with rocks on top of our hero. So, I guess Chu just keeps filing cabinets filled with rocks in his base in case he needs to crush an Iron Man? Alright, go off then. This actually does knock our hero off his feet for a while, but it isn't long until he's able to regain his footing again and continue pursuing the warload. However, at the most inopportune moment, he begins to run low on power and cannot continue the chase. This will become a recurring problem for Stark in many, many stories to come. All isn't lost, however. Chu calls out for his guards, whoever's left anyway, as he runs past the ammo shed, which, surprise surprise, our boy has already sabotaged by leaving a trail of gunpowder near the shed and lighting it, showing off the Mark I's flamethrower ability in the process. The shed goes boom, and seemingly takes the warlord with it, and that will be the end of Wang Chu. The last two panels show Iron Man standing amongst the wreckage, proclaiming that he has freed the prisoners of the camp and avenged Dr. Yensen, and walking off into the horizon wearing the same trench coat and fedora from earlier, wondering what fate has in store for him now that he has become a walking metal shell. That last part is interesting. Not only does it show that Marvel really likes their heroes walking pensively towards the horizon with their backs towards in dramatic fashion, but the text here appears to imply that Tony was meant to be permanently, or at least semi-permanently, sealed in the armor. He describes Iron Man as a, quote, metallic Hulk who was once Anthony Stark. Meaning that, in essence, Anthony Stark died in captivity and Iron Man is what's left of him. Obviously, we know with the benefit of hindsight that this isn't going to stick, as we'll see at the start of the very next issue that he has managed to approve the efficiency of the armor's life support systems, so that only the chest piece is required to be worn at all times. That's right. It doesn't even take a whole issue to resolve this problem, 
My boy just got it like that. But as of the end of this origin story, it is the metal shell that is preserved while the fate of the man is up in the air, perhaps never to be heard from again, sealed forever in what is effectively an armored coffin. Retcons, references, and reflections. Origin of a hero. Iron Man's origin has been retold, refined, and even retconned many times over the past six decades since he first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 39. Over the years, on the occasion when the story is retold, a new aspect will gain focus depending on the writer, including the inherent trauma of the entire situation and Tony's survivor's guilt from walking away knowing that Jensen sacrificed his life for him when he felt he didn't deserve it. These aspects would also be touched upon in the MCU film retelling, which shifts the location from Southeast Asia to the Middle East, due to the United States' then-current involvement in the region as a result of the political climate post-9-11. The Middle East location shift was almost certainly taken from the most well-known retelling of the story, recounted during the highly acclaimed Extremis storyline from 2005. In recent years, however, the location was shifted yet again back to Southeast Asia, as part of a larger sequence of events related to a fictional conflict called the Singkong Rebellion, which is clearly meant to evoke and retain Vietnam War elements of certain characters' backstories, histories, and origins, especially as we get farther and farther out from that point in history. Characters affected by this shift most notably include Benjamin Grimm, aka The Thing of the Fantastic Four, Frank Castle, aka The Punisher, and of course, our boy Anthony Stark. For more information, you can delve into the six-part miniseries known as the History of the Marvel Universe, which is essentially the Cliff Notes version of the Marvel canon, from the Golden Age to the present and beyond. <sighs> My personal favorite retelling of Iron Man's origin will be touched upon in the event that we reach John Byrne's short but epic run from the late 1980s, when the origin is still being told is happening during the conflict in Vietnam. In Byrne's retelling, he gives more explicit detail about the events that took place during Tony and Jensen's captivity, and we get a real sense of their camaraderie as they bond as fellow prisoners of war that makes us believe just that little bit more that Tony would be deeply shaken by Jensen's sacrifice. Discounting the location shift from Southeast Asia to the Middle East, I was amazed when I first read the story how closely the MCU actually stuck to the origin as originally presented. It's probably one of the most accurate on-screen retellings of a superhero origin to date, which is amazing considering what will come later for MCU Shellhead, where the stories being told and even the baddies he would fight would ultimately veer the furthest away from his counterbook counterpart. Go figure, huh? The origin also illustrates what will become an unfortunate issue with this book for a long time, as it solidifies Iron Man as a commie smasher hero and he would end up fighting a whole bunch of racially insensitive characters in socio-geographically incorrect locations. This is something the book would eventually outgrow, but it does take some time. I guess it can't help but take some lengthy growing pains to break out of that kind of thing, when your book is mostly written against the backdrop of the Cold War and written by mostly middle-aged white dudes. It begs the question over whether these stories should be looked at as simply a product of the time, or if there really is no excuse for this kind of ignorance. But that's probably a conversation for another time, and quite frankly, a little bit outside the purview of this podcast. After all, I'm not a historian. I'm just here to talk about comic books. 
However, you can best believe this will come up again. So, if you're not prepared or comfortable with that sort of thing, I don't know what to tell you. So, get prepared, I guess. Shrapnel in the heart. Though this detail seems inconsequential in the long run, there are some discrepancies surrounding the details of Tony's injury that he sustains during the trip mine explosion. The implication from this original story seems to be that it was a secondary blast injury that sent dozens of pieces of tiny shrapnel into his chest cavity, damaging his heart, and in turn greatly endangering his life. Later retellings will render as a single large piece of shrapnel that became lodged in his chest instead, poking through to his heart more like a dagger. This remained a common interpretation throughout almost every retelling, regardless of how little it actually makes sense for this type of explosion. At least, in my amateur opinion, anyway. But, what do I know? I'm a database analyst, not an explosives expert. In any case, the only thing that all interpretations seem to agree upon is the actual material of the shrapnel that injures Tony. Metal. Possibly pieces, or a piece, of the mine itself and the presence and location of the shrapnel is close enough to his heart to be pretty much fatal if not dealt with or staved off with some kind of clever contraption or device designed to keep the shrapnel away and or keep him alive. This is where I will again praise the MCU interpretation for its take, as I feel it is the most accurate. The Iron Man film depicts the injury as dozens of pieces of shrapnel, tiny metal barbs that have lodged so deep into Tony's chest cavity that it was impossible for Jensen who was forced to operate on Tony to keep him alive at least a little bit longer to remove them all given the rudimentary tools he had access to in the cave. The film even goes as far as to show the weapon that injures Tony, a missile in this case rather than a mine, and one that seems sadistically designed to specifically inflict this type of injury and bearing the Stark Industries insignia, and it can be easily inferred that said missile was very likely designed by Tony himself. In the comic continuity, the first time it is explicitly stated that the explosive device that injured Tony was created by Tony is, to my knowledge off the top of my head, the origin flashback during Mike Grell's run in the early 2000s. However, with hubris being one of Tony's most definitive flaws, it stands to reason that this may have been the intention from the very beginning, making his origin story the first instance of Tony Stark being his own worst enemy. In terms of the actual device used to keep our dear Anthony in this mortal plane, it evolves and varies in more modern interpretations. Post-origin, his life-preserving device is his metal chest plate, acting as a literal iron lung. In the MCU, it's the arc reactor, he has implanted in his chest in the first few films. Apparently, this imagery of the ring of light from the reactor shining in the center of his chest, was so striking that this method is also commonly depicted in other media as well, following the first Iron Man film, including the incredible animated series The Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and all subsequent Marvel animation that depicts Iron Man in some capacity. Even Marvel video games have picked this up, most notably the recently released Marvel's Midnight Suns, a supernatural-themed strategy card battler slash friendship simulator from Firaxis, the developers that bought us the XCOM franchise. It was released for the PC, Xbox Series X and S, and PlayStation 5 in November of 2022. Amusingly, the quippy jokes and chess reactor are the only things the Midnight Suns version of Tony shares with his MCU counterpart. Everything else about him, down to his actual appearance, actually veers closer to what I immediately recognize his comic book self to be, 
right down to the mustache and lack of chin hair. The beard can come and go. The mustache is non-negotiable. He's pretty much the spinning image of comic book Tony from around the early 90s, which is fitting considering the general late 80s, early 90s inspired aesthetic of the game in general. He even has blue eyes. It's the simple things that give me joy. Another variant on the device implant can be seen in the animated series Iron Man Armored Adventures. But this version of Tony's background and origin is so very different from the norm, starting with the fact that he's significantly aged down to school age, think Spider-Man except Iron Man, and his accident is not a kidnapping, but a plane crash. It's definitely a unique take on the character that for all intents and purposes should not work. But somehow it does. So much so that perhaps it maybe requires its own episode someday. Let me know if that's something you'd want, and we'll get around to it. Thank you very much for spending the time with me to take this walk through Iron Man's origin story. Next up, we will be discussing his first few adventures in TOS issues number 40 through 42, as we take a look at what works, what doesn't, what will eventually change, and what aspects will stick around regardless. The highlights will include the first armor redesign, as well as showing how successfully, or not, Tony is able to juggle his multiple roles as inventor, playboy, and superhero. I hope you will join me then. Until next time, I'm Marissa, and you've been listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Stay safe and be good, y'all.